welcome to Real Estate Coaching Radio, starring award-winning real estate coaches and number one international best-selling authors, Tim and Julie Harris. Real Estate Coaching Radio is the nation's number one daily radio show for realtors who demand authentic, real-time coaching. Get ready for fluff-free, unfiltered, full-strength honesty about what's truly working to get you into action, helping others, and making money now in today's real estate market. Now to our hosts... Tim and Julie Harris. And welcome back. We have a really great show for you guys today. Julie and I had a lot of fun um, working on the content, which the essence of it is, is why we might be wrong. <laughs> you know, I think sometimes we come off a little bit too maybe aggressive about our points, and it's just to make a point too. So we know some of you are listening while working out, listening while driving around. So we need to be really, really aggressive with making sure the points are being heard so that you can do something with this information. So when Julie and I were uh, planning on doing a juxtaposition of the last four podcasts we've done, and today's podcast is The Real Estate Reset, Why We Might Be Wrong, um, yeah, we had some fun with it because we, 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 you cannot have an effective argument or you cannot have an, uh, really a solid perspective unless you see both sides of the, of the coin. And if, unless you can actually logically argue for and against the point you think is right, then you haven't thought it through. And so it's always a good experience when, you, when you're when you so damn sure you're right about something to, to look at the other side of it and to really try to argue the other side's points and see if there's any validity. And in doing so, you might actually find some real reasons that your argument is flawed. Obviously, this is sort of a you know, a classical Greek way of thinking about how to uh, converse and how to make points and how to debate. Those of you guys know what I'm talking about. The rest of you, well, I'm sorry for just being boring there for you for a second. So today we're going to be telling you, and this is part five technically, of the, of the you know, real estate reset. We've already talked about phase one, two, three, and four. Um, we're not going to spend a lot of time reviewing those phases. We want you to go back and listen to those previous podcasts. But we will, I'm going to uh, essentially set the stage with this understanding. This is a review, a brief review from yesterday, but it's important if you're listening to this, it's the first show you've ever listened to, that you understand that we are in what Julie and I are calling the second phase of a real estate reset. Some of you, New York City, you're in the third phase of the real estate reset. Go back and listen to the podcast. They're on iTunes. They're on Stitcher. They're on your favorite podcasting listening app. You know, they're on timandjulieharris.com. So go back and listen. We spent hours researching what, how to define what the phases are for you guys. And then we use this information. We sent it. We sent it to a couple, you know, people that we know that are a lot smarter than us that are in the real estate space as economists for big companies. And we said, does this make sense? Are we explaining this in a, uh, it, the correct way? Are we skipping something? You know, is there anything that you would add to this to make it better? And they said pretty much you, we're hitting the nail on the head. A couple tweaks here and there. Um, so that's what we presented to you in the past four shows. So make sure you go and listen. And the same information also we are writing for the sake of our new book, which is coming out um, actually this time next year. So here it is. Understand that the last real estate correction started in 2006. It, it, was, it followed a long real estate boom, which lasted about five or six years. I realize this is before many of you were in the real estate business. So the real estate market essentially hit its peak in 2006 and 2007, and then entered into its steady, slow state of decline. That is what's happening now. Now, it's not happening in the same a big blow-up way, thank God, as it did back then. And we do not think it's going to create some – there's no endemic problems that's going to bring into the rest of the economy like it did um, last time. 
But be sure that there is a real estate slowdown happening. And um, again, it's going to affect all. The, you need to know your individual market. You need to realize even if you're in one of these markets, it's really hard hit by the slowdown. You are still going to have pockets, and sometimes it can be computer, uh, entire communities or subdivisions, or maybe even cities that are doing really well. I use, from our own experience, I'll, you know, when Julie and I sold real estate in Columbus, Ohio, I'll tell you, there were, and we never sold in a hot seller's market, ever. We've coached agents in hot seller's markets, never sold in a hot seller's market. When Julie and I sold real estate, 99% of the listing appointments we'd go on, the sellers were not making any money whatsoever. That is called, essentially, a real estate market that was flat. So people would buy these houses, and they would not have any appreciation on the house. The house might keep up with inflation and increase in value every year by 2 to 3%. But if they put new roofs and windows and all the rest of it into it, and if they didn't stay there at least 10 years, they were probably literally losing money. In other words, it was normal for us to go to a closing, and the check that we walked away from the closing table with was larger than the check that the seller walked away from the closing table with. Now, if they had big down payments and the rest of it, obviously that wasn't the case. Um, but when you really penned it out, it, we were always, always, always in a buyer's market, except in our market, there were little areas that were incredibly strong. You know, there was this area called German Village that when Julie and I sold real estate was doing amazingly well. And now in Columbus, Julie and I visited there a couple months ago to visit our rentals and family and whatnot. And there's another area that's really hot and bubbly called, you know, uh, Short North and all these other areas that are sort of downtown, the inner city type stuff, revitalization, revitalization type thing. And it was amazing. It was like we were visiting a different world. And then Julie and I went out to our old stomping grounds where we sold real estate in the later stages of our career in New Albany. And I've never seen a place that was more – so obviously, even in Columbus, Ohio, there's always going to be areas that are going to be hot to sell in. So you want to make sure that where you're selling real estate is not going to be one of these areas that's going to be long-term, you know, going to be always on the downward spiral. Now, I'm not saying you can't be successful in markets like that. I'm just saying you're setting yourself up for a long-term cycle of pain. And I'll give you another example from when Julie and I sold real estate again. So there was an area called Muirfield, Muirfield Golf Course. You guys know what I'm talking about if you follow golf. Muirfield got started in the 70s. Um, incredibly popular, you know, the whole thing was one of the biggest successes, whatever, 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 and then all of a sudden it wasn't. And what happened was there was a new community, New Albany in particular, and this new you know, area called Powell, which was getting developed, that sucked the life out of Muirfield. So the houses got older in Muirfield. The houses needed rehabbed in Muirfield. People didn't want to buy them because they could just drive 20 minutes away and be in this new cool area called Powell. Or they could drive maybe 45 minutes away and be in this new cool area called New Albany. And that's what happened. So we knew agents who were incredibly successful, but number one, number two agents in all of Columbus, making who knows how much money for so long because they had planted their flag in the right place at the right time, which was Muirfield. But what happened was the market started to change, and they rode that market down. So I'm thinking, and we don't need to say the names, Julie, one couple in particular mm -hmm. who, again, they basically went from being the king of the mountain and rode all the way down to what happened to them. It's because they didn't pivot fast enough in their marketplace. That's the reason we're giving you this information. So you can make business decisions – and you can decide, well, okay, I realize this market that I'm in right now might not be the best place for me to be five years from now or five months from now, and maybe I need to start thinking about diversification in terms of like studying and doing what Tim and Julie say so I can make sure that I'm investing myself in a community that is going to pay me dividends for a long, long time to come. Guys, this is how business people think. So think like this, 
and that way you'll have a long career that doesn't have to suffer from these big ups and downs. Julie, anything you'd like to say or you want to get to our, our first point on why we might be wrong? Yeah, well, this is some. sometimes it's hard for them to see that and to track it when they're in the thick of it and they're having high-volume months, and they've got more closings than they've ever had before. And even if that's not the case, when you have one or two deals, you know, kind of consuming all of your time. But what we've been talking about on the past few podcasts is so critical to your long-term trajectory that you're actually watching this. So one of the things that I like to get them to do in uh, Premier Coaching is to use the opportunity on each subject property to learn all of this stuff. That way you're kind of multitasking. You know, you've got that appointment. You've got to really concentrate on that seller prospect and taking the best care of them possible. Use that as the excuse to deep dive into what's happening in, in that neighborhood, list to sell price ratio, days on the market. Are those things going up or down? Is your inventory of the competition going up or down? So you can still carve out time to learn all of this stuff and be frosty on what's happening and go on all of your appointments and take care of your people. So don't feel like you're going to get to this when you get time. You're probably never going to get time. You have to do this on virtually a daily basis. Look at your hot sheets. You know, get into this. Ignoring it, hiding out from it, will guarantee that something sneaks up on you, just like those Muirfield agents had New Albany sneak up on them. Had they been watching that three, four, five years earlier, or at least six months earlier, they probably would have had a different outcome. So don't ignore the facts. All right. Shall we get into here's why we might be wrong? Yep. Here's why we might be wrong. And so, listen, this show will seem – odd to you unless you listen to the first four shows so go back and listen to the first four shows go ahead Jules all right perfect so why we might be wrong about what we've been talking about number one the GDP gross domestic product is at 4.1 percent the highest it's been in the past 10 years so the economy is healthy that's you know potentially different than last time around how much will that create a softer landing a softer reset time will tell but that's a good indication of health Anything you want to add to that, Tim? It appears that the gross domestic product actually might go – so 4.1% was the best it's been for – this is not a political statement. This, doesn't, this isn't produced by you know, Democrats or the Republicans. Yeah, it's just a fact. Uh, if you guys want to know what the D GDP has studied, it's kind of interesting. Bottom line is they track the prices of like a hand-selected things. Like I think they still use like the cost – just everything. Go go through there and, and just research it yourself. You'll, you'll find it fascinating what is or isn't tracked by the government in terms of price, and then what is or isn't tracked in terms of uh, how they ascertain whether the economy is growing or not. Um, so it's 4.1%, but now projections are that the number actually might be for the whole calendar year, uh, for the whole fiscal year, something like 5%. So this could very well be, we could very well be into a new uh, boom and the overall economy, which will absolutely, as Julie just said, soften the blow to any kind of housing reset. And no, we've not seen a cycle like this before. I, and again, we researched the snot out of this. We've not seen a cycle where essentially you have this long of a boom in the economy without a bust. And so people that are predicting recessions, a recession is basically two quarters in a row of negative GDP growth. And we're, what we're seeing is the exact opposite of what a recession, uh, what you should see with a recession. We're seeing the GDP grow stronger. So if there were to be a recession using technical definitions, it wouldn't happen. It's not on the horizon is, is bottom line. Now, does that mean that there can't be a reset in housing? Of course not. R housing values can operate independently of the overall economy. Um, 
So, you know, and that's a good thing because as we know last time, housing had a problem and then everything had a problem and the economy went down. So not going to happen this time, we don't think. And very well could be that the cycle that we've seen in the past with housing corrections that have lasted 10 to 12 years could be condensed to only last maybe three. Um, never happened before, but we're conceding that it's possible that it might happen this time just because the macro things that are happening in the economy. Next point, Jules. Yes, next point is number two, and this is significant as well. The sheer size of the millennial population and their need for housing may throw a wrench into the higher inventory story. Remember, when inventory goes up, typically there's pressure for prices to come down, inventory continues to grow, and then that becomes sort of a cyclone of change. But the millennial population coming of age and being ready to buy could recalibrate the timing of peak to trough they could accelerate the correction by gobbling up all of that inventory. Many of them have been on the sidelines waiting for there to be something to buy at a reasonable price. I read something that the, I mean, even amongst the millennial population, there is a bubble. Not every year in the millennial generation had the same amount of people, right? So the, the peak, the highest population, I believe, turns 30 years old in 2020. 31. So yeah. is it 31? So yeah, they're you know, right they ought to be buying something. They're family forming. They're ready to go. They're outgrowing you know, their one-bedroom condos, apartments. They're out of college. They're getting their student loans paid off. They're ready to rumble. So because there's that many of them, that may create that gobbling up of inventory and create a softer landing. So right. it could be interesting. So those of you and, who have been but, like making fun of and blowing off millennials, all their first-time buyers, blah, 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 you, you know, get your game together because that's the next round of buyers. Go ahead. And the, the, you know, in addition to that, and just slight addition to that, is the fact that the uh, millennials are not necessarily going to like, – so the, the perception that many of us have is you buy real estate partially as an investment. Well, what is, the, what is the perception of real estate, as it is in most of the country, by the way, is that it's a place where you live and you, you, know, you can sock some money away and pay the house off, but at the end of the day, you always need a place to live, and you know, that's how you look at it. You don't look at it as basically a winning lottery ticket. What if this new generation starts considering real estate to be just a place where you live? Do they really give a rat's ass what they overpay a little bit? Or the whole perception of, well, I'm going to, you know, that, that's what we start seeing in phase two. Buyers start taking themselves out of the market because they get nervous that they're going to overpay. Well, you know what? If you're having a small family and you're needing more space, and you're probably going to set those money-motivated fears aside because you just need a place to call home. That could very well be happening or will happen in such sheer volume from the millennials that really, again, they'll essentially wipe out any excessive supply that comes for sale. That is something that is very realistic to assume will happen. Next point, Jules. Yes, and, and proof that that can happen. I mean, think about when our parents bought their houses. I was just talking to your mom last night about uh, interest rates, you know, and when she was selling real estate, in fact, that, I mean, if you were to say to the buyers in today's market, guess what? The interest rate you're going to pay is 18%. Everybody would just have a total conniption over that, right? And yet, when interest rates were that high, people still bought and sold houses. Both of our parents bought their houses during times like that. Why? Because of what you said. They had growing families. They needed more space. They wanted better schools. They bought for normal reasons. So don't despair. And, you know, we're far, far away from interest rates that crazy. So, all right, number three why we might be wrong. The unraveling of the real estate market will happen in a more predictable and organized way this time since there are clear paths to follow, unlike before. 
remember, we started teaching short sales in 2006, and nobody even knew what a short sale was. That was our number one question back then, what is a short sale? Now there's streamlined short sales from virtually every lender out there. It's been systematized. You can buy a house within 24 months after a short sale. Now not seven years. That's completely different. Remember back then, nobody knew what was going to happen and how long you'd be punished for it. Homeowners can be more strategic than before and actually plan their graceful exit. No constipated python this time. This is what we used to call the backup of inventory, people waiting, not have, you know, having been foreclosed on and all those types of things. So there is precedent this time around. People know what to do and how to do it. So that may create a little bit of a you know more normal adjustment Expediency. versus a crash. Yeah. Expediency. Well, yeah. Um, you know we may we may get I mean, through it in two or three years instead of seven or ten. Right. I mean I, you said that perfectly. There's nothing more to say. It's but it, it, there it is important to know that one of the reasons maybe one of the reasons that the crash took so long to you know six seven painful years to kind of come around again was because there was so much as Julie and I phrased it, the constipated python going on, because so many people didn't, there was no system in place to, to deal with a disorder, to, to create an orderly exit. I think it was um, Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac that came up with that phrase. You know, the orderly exit, the graceful exit for some of these people that basically couldn't or didn't want to keep their homes anymore. Now, so in your markets, if that starts to happen again, there's going to be a very clear path to follow. This leads, this leads to this. Twelve years ago, no clear path. It was murky, mm -hmm. and the rules were changing every month. And it was like one bank was doing things one way, another bank was doing things the other way, and oh my gosh, and then there was a new program, and Obama was on TV talking about some other new program, and all new programs. There was just a constant, constant barrage. You really, what the hell is going on? And this time, when, it does, when there is some unraveling, it's not going to be like that. It's a very clear path to follow. Next point, Jules? Yes, indeed. So the last point is that we know – that when people are underwater on their home, many will strategically default once they have no real skin in the game or no equity. So this is a bit of a wild card here. Statistically, historically, once you're at break even and your house is no longer a piggy bank, and certainly when you're underwater, meaning you owe more than it's worth, well, you know, you're not really incentivized to keep on making that payment, and some people will bail. Now, I would say that the counter to that is think about the people that – were strategic last time, but now have seen seven, eight, 10, 12 years later that had they kept their home instead of strategically defaulted, they probably would be okay right now. Not in every market. Some markets still are not at that peak yet, believe it or not. But there is probably an element out there saying, you know what, if I could have just held out, if I could have just replaced my job faster or tapped into my 401k and just kept the house, I would have been better off today. So how that ethos goes We'll just have to wait and see. What would you add to that, Tim? Nothing. I think you said it perfectly. You know, it's, so these are all the reasons we might be wrong about there being another, you know, longer-term uh, real estate correction, or as we're calling, real estate reset. Do we have any other points? I don't think we do. Do we? That's it. We're through the woods. Yeah. There you go. Now, some of you can think of other reasons why we might be wrong. Share them with us. Tim at timandjulieharris.com or Julie at timandjulieharris.com. I think we hit on all the high points, though. Um, you know, so you have to balance it out. You have to make a professional decision. You have to decide based on your own life experience and based on your own information gathering um, what you think is going to happen and then prepare. And how do you prepare? So what do you do now with all this information? Let's assume that you're convinced, you're positive that there's going to be a real estate reset or you're already experiencing it. So what you have to start with is point number one. 
the understanding and acceptance that, you guys should remember this, everything that you have done in the past to uh, make money and be successful in real estate is probably not going to work at all or at the same level that it has in the past. And mostly this is true for those of you who have basically been addicted to buying buyer leads. Mostly, most of you who have been addicted to getting leads passively from a referral programs. And I'm going to give you guys a couple of little interesting tidbits on this. Um, Zillow yesterday had a 16% drop in their share value. Now, they bought a mortgage company, and, and you know they're saying, well, that's because the street's not very confident in their ability to handle mortgages or whatever. But there's another little factoid that's getting missing, that's being missed in this whole uh, information about Zillow is that their premier agent program is not uh, it's starting to fail and why is it starting to fail because I can only assume because the leads that they are providing for agents were not the same quality as they were say 10 or 12 years ago or and agents are realizing that buyer leads really don't have that much value and then if you just list a couple houses you can generate your own buyer leads no problem whatsoever which is by the way what we've been telling all of you guys forever don't buy buyer leads it's ridiculous um, so there's, you're going to start seeing a lot of the agents who are dependent on being fed like little hungry birds in a nest. You're going to see those agents, they're going to start to struggle. The problem is they're going to take too long to pivot. They're going to be, they're, they're going to, sometimes what you'll see people do is they'll double down on the dumb. Double down on the dumb is what Julie and I refer to as when you, real, when you do not, when something's failing and opposed to saying this isn't working anymore, you double down on it. And that's dumb because at the end of the day, you're just going to cause your failure to happen faster because now you've put more resources, time, energy, and money behind the thing that wasn't working. So the premise you have to take is that everything that you've done in your business to generate business in the past 10 to 12 years is not going to work the same or at all in a changing market in phase two, phase three, phase four. You guys get it? So if you start with that premise, then you're going to have to basically take an honest look at what the results are that you're getting from some of these things that you guys have started to spend money on over the last 12 years. Your websites, your podcasts, your, you know, some of you guys are doing different things as far as trying to passively generate business from you know, referral companies and all these types of things. But you've never actually learned how to develop your own business, which is number two. Number two, one of the things that all of you should be doing immediately is learning how to be proactive lead generators opposed to passive lead generators. Because in a changing market, and this could last two or three years, in a changing market, so many agents will be stuck in that first phase where they're going to be in denial about it, and they're going to double down on dumb, and they're not going to actually pivot. They're not going to put themselves in a position where they have to learn to do anything different. When that happens, it creates huge opportunities because you're going to start seeing the listing inventory increase. You're going to start seeing more expires. You're going to start seeing more disenfranchised, unrepresented owners, a.k.a. FISBOs that can't sell their own houses. You're going to start seeing all kinds of opportunities for you to seize if you know what to say and how to say it. The difference between a passive lead generator and a proactive lead generator is a proactive lead generator can wake up every single day and they, can, they will decide what their own financial destiny will be based on the efforts that they put forth. I think that's pretty simple, guys. Why would you ever not want to be a proactive lead generator? Because you don't know what to say, you don't know how to say it, which is number three. You have to get your skills on. The past 12 years has been largely a relationship-based business. Those of you who had centers of influence and past clients-based businesses for a long time, I know you're already starting to feel the squeeze because your phone's not ringing. You're not getting the leads that you were getting before. You're not getting the reactions you were before, and here's why. 
because in a seller's market, sellers are not that careful who they list with. They aren't. They're not going to interview a bunch of different agents because they know that the house will sell itself for the most part. And that's how they, they can, you know, they'll decide what the commission is going to be. They'll decide what the price is going to be. They'll be in control. That's the, how these, you know, I love it how uh, Inman refers to these as new tech companies. That's how all these te- uh, discounters can actually get a, a stranglehold on some of these markets. It's because in a seller's market, the sellers are not selective as much as they are when the market starts to shift, let alone a buyer's market. And I'm already seeing this with some of our coaching clients. You know, you're seeing some of your centers of influence and past clients who you, you went on this listing appointment you thought it was a laydown, and you didn't get the listing because you were competing against somebody who actually had a listing presentation, who actually had a pre-listing pack, who knew how to basically have conversations with sellers about price and commission in such a way that it wasn't confrontational but at the same time you know, was effective. These are the skill sets you need to be transitioning towards immediately, and if you don't, you're going to get – the market will just literally just wash over you. You won't even know what happened. You will have a month go by, and you'll say, well, that was kind of a crappy month. There'll be two months. There'll be three months. And then you're going to start saying, what well, must be the interest rates? It must be politics. It must be the weather. No, it's you. You didn't change. And your buyers and your sellers, they're looking for agents who, not just because they know you from church or because you're friendly or your kids are on the same swimming team. They're looking for agents who they are confident have the skill set to get the job done. That's the thing that changes in a, in a changing market. That's the reason that if you don't change, you won't make it. That's what happens every single time we're in a market cycle like this. So point number three, again, is you have to improve your skill set. You have to be introspective. And the best question I always ask folks that are considering coaching, for example, is tell me the three to five things, the three to five things that you know you should be doing that you're not doing. What are the three to five things that you're avoiding the most, basically? And it's always the same three to five things. It's picking up the phone. It's uh, you know learning a, organized using anything that resembles a script. It's using anything that resembles a pre. Most people, most agents want to just go with the strongest breeze wherever it blows them. That's it. That's that's it. They don't want to have any sort of regimented accountability. You know where they're actually supposed to follow a system, where they're having a schedule. Where da, 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 da. so you ask yourself, what are the things that I'm trying to avoid the most in my my professional life? It's all the things that lead directly to a paycheck. Isn't that fascinating? Well, Tim, I am not going to call an expired. I am not going to call it for sale by owner. And yet those are the things that lead the quickest to a paycheck. Isn't that fascinating? I'm not going to call any of the other 48 sources of leads that Julie and I share with you how to get um, when you join our coaching program. You know, that's what you guys say, a lot of you, until it's too late. And then you realize the agents that were like, who the heck is that agent who's now number one in our office? Who's, the heck, who's that agent who's now number one in our city? That's what happens in a market like this. It's very predictable, guys. You know, you can bounce this back and forth in your head trying to argue with me in your head as to why we might be wrong what we're saying, but we're not wrong about what we're saying. I'm sorry that nobody else is telling you this. I'm sorry that, you know, we're, tr- we're not overtly trying to make you feel happy and motivated and work on your mindset. We're trying to make you smart and strong and powerful. So you can be of service to other people, and you can take care of yourself, and you can take care of your family. And then you can be without fear of a changing market. Because the fact is, my last point, is always know, point number four, always know that there's always money to be made, always people to help, no matter what direction the housing market's going. Guys, it does not matter if the seller's house is worth more or less than it was when they bought it. You're still going to get paid a commission when it sells, provided you're the agent that is doing, you know, has the listing when it sells. 
You guys following me on this? So those are the four things I want you to take away from these changing, this changing market series that we just did. Now, the last thing for you to do is take action on this. Don't wait. Don't procrastinate. Don't be in denial. Don't try to rationalize that we're wrong. Just assume that what we're telling you is right. And even if there's only a mild reset in your marketplace and you've overprepared, where's the downside? You're a better agent. You're a better professional. You're making more money. Downside? Don't see one. So here's the next natural step for all of you. Just go to freecoachingcallsforagents.com. Speak with one of our new member coaches. They're going to help you create a lead generation wheel. That lead generation wheel is something that is built for the new market. Freecoachingcallsforagents.com. If you need Julie and I for anything, it's Tim at TimAndJulieHarris.com or Julie at TimAndJulieHarris.com. You, you all have a fantastic day, and we'll talk to you on the show tomorrow. This program has been a presentation by Tim and Julie Harris Real Estate Coaching. For more information on our real estate coaching and training programs, visit our website at timandjulieharris.com. Remember to tune in weekdays at noon for upcoming shows. And until next time, thank you for listening to Real Estate Coaching Radio with Tim and Julie Harris. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.